From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. 12.08 on this Friday afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. Another busy show ahead, but we are starting talking about some of the questions that are now being asked. Now that we know Taylor Swift is in fact coming to Vancouver. Three shows in December of next year and a lot of questions about where exactly people will stay Are there enough rooms for people who will be flooding into the city? Uh, The financial impacts as well, we know, are going to be huge based on some other cities. Before we get to my first guest, I just wanted to play a quick comment. This was from Lana Popham, who is the Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport, when asked about this yesterday. We see the the success of her tours in the United States. Um, In Denver, for example, two concerts brought in $140 million dollars. Swifties spend on average about $1,300 when they attend. And so when we think about it in that way, we know that it will be an economic uh, driver while she's here. Uh, Our restaurants, our arts and culture facilities, they will be coming to see Taylor, but they're going to be enjoying a lot more things that our our province offers. And we expect a lot of international visitors. International visitors are key because they spend more than one night here when they come, and we hope to entice them into other parts of British Columbia. All right, that was Lana Popham, again, the Minister for Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport, speaking about this yesterday. Joining me now to talk more about this is Corinne Kirkpatrick, BC United MLA for West Vancouver Capilano, also the Shadow Minister for Housing and Child Care. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks for the invite, Jill. Uh, You put out uh, on social media talking about uh, addressing something I think that a lot of people have been asking since this big concert announcement. Where is everybody going to stay? And uh, really focusing on the the restrictions when it comes to Airbnb. What are your concerns about this? Well, we've had concerns in Vancouver and British Columbia for quite a while, just in terms of the lack of hotel uh, accommodation and the ability to host any large-scale event. Uh, But with the Airbnb and the short-term rental restrictions, it is going to take even more units out of the hospitality market. And we can talk about specifically what those units are um, and it is going to have uh, even a bigger impact on the uh, on the ability for people to find safe uh, accommodation but wasn't the whole point of the restrictions that in doing in putting those restrictions in place it would actually put more rentals back into the long-term pool Absolutely. And we are fully supportive of some kind of regulation around short-term rentals. Um, But there are a lot of individuals who own one unit. It's their retirement uh, uh, plan. Um, There are a number of units that were also built, and this is where we really have a challenge. They were built specifically to be operated as short-term rentals. They're very often in the tourist area of of a city. There's the transient um, accommodation area in downtown Victoria. So people bought these. They're 200, 300 square feet on the basis that they would be able to operate them as Airbnbs. They were non-conforming legislation or zoning, and people that that was the agreement when they bought in. These are also no longer going to be available, and they're a pretty substantial part of the uh, this short-term rental market. 
you put on social media as well, and I know you talked about this before this legislation was brought in, that, there, that you brought those proposed amendments, one of those amendments being to exempt major events. How would that work? Well, it's uh, it, we have to working with municipalities in order to be able to to uh, come up with a way that is going to make sense for those municipalities. But I will tell you that we have regulations with the Residential Tenancy Act and the Residential Tenancy Branch. We cannot and would not um, suggest that long-term tenants would be in um, uh, peril in terms of, uh, of of having tenancies ended. We we can't do that. It's illegal, and that wouldn't be the expectation. But there does need to be flexibility for many of those units um, that are currently not rented. Or I'll, I'll give you an example: is that. There are people who, um, for example, live in Alberta. They're snowboard, snowbirds to British Columbia. They're only here for part of the year, uh, but they are, it's not their principal residence, so they are not allowed now to do short-term rentals in that unit because of the new regulations. If there was some flexibility um, and we could look at more opportunities to, for a short period of time, bring some of these back on without uh, disturbing a long-term residency, I think we need to be flexible and look at that. Right. And and I guess that's where some of the, the questions were coming, that if it was exempting major events, then how would that actually work with long-term rentals and that you wouldn't be kicking people out every time there was, uh, say, a, a big soccer event or, or a, a concert like this, but but more to the types of rentals that, that you're mentioning. Um, do you think, though, is there too much focus put on private homeowners when it comes to either uh, offering up being the solution for for more rentals or being the solution for a lack of hotel rooms? Well, I mean, the problem that we've got with a housing crisis is that we don't, we're not building enough housing. And I, so I think the focus needs to be on let's get more accommodation built for people so that uh, we can have a normalized rental market, a normalized um, ownership market. So these kinds of uh, requirements won't be, won't be necessary, but we haven't, we haven't got there yet. Um, uh, this government hasn't met its commitments and its building targets at this point. Um, so uh, the, the other piece of this, and I think I'm answering your question, Jill, the other piece of this is there's a real um, preference being given in this legislation to people who are owners, who are in a position where they own and they own somewhere that is large enough so that they can have a coach house or so they, they can have um, a basement suite. So there's a lot of preference given to that owner in their residence as opposed to someone who rents in a, uh, an apartment or owns in an apartment. Um, so there is a reliance on those residential uh, homes, but is it fair and equitable uh, to other people who would like to participate in a small way in, uh, in the shared economy. Does it make it more complicated as well, given that even before the province brought in the short-term rental restrictions, Vancouver as a city already had them in place? Um, uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, you, you, it overrides what those restrictions or how, uh, how tough those restrictions may have been. And I will look to these um, non-conforming use buildings. So in Victoria, and I'm hearing from a lot of people, across, you know, Kelowna, many places have this, where people had allowed, it was non-conforming zoning, and the cities had allowed that 
And now this provincial regulation is overriding that zoning that the cities had allowed and is disallowing um, all of these smaller uh, short-term rental specific spaces. So, yes, there were um, regulations in place, uh, but this is even more restrictive than, than what we had. Is there any room then, do you think, for changes? I mean, it didn't seem like the government was was even listening or was 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 um, looking at the the proposed amendments with any any uh, sense that they were going to they were even open to changing the legislation or the restrictions. Yeah, we were very disappointed in that. I, I think you know when the minister talks about going after people that own twenty and thirty units. We, we understand that and we're supportive of that. We were saying when you've got somebody who owns one, um, then let's take a look realistically at what impact that is going to have on the rental market, which is going to be negligible. Uh, but we also understand that this government didn't, uh, you know, engage with people, um, uh, you know, these small Airbnb owners. There are people that are employed in the sector. There are people, I'm hearing heartbreaking stories from people how this uh, legislation that was brought in so quickly without warning has uh, financially um, devastated some people. So, and if you look at the film industry, we heard them say, well, you know what, we're just going to pack up and we're going to go to a different jurisdiction because there's not enough hotel space. We can't bring people here. Um, so there's been a lot of impact uh, that this government, I don't think, took into consideration. They didn't listen to the amendments, which we thought were fair and reasonable that we proposed. And I just want to be clear too, Jill, we support... Um, uh, the regulation of, of short-term rentals and Airbnb. We just want to make sure it's not at the expense of all other things. And we need to be building more housing, but it's building more housing and adding more to the housing inventory. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. As you've likely heard on the news, the Vancouver Police Department executed several search warrants on Wednesday. This was part of an investigation, according to Vancouver Police, into the sale of illegal psychedelic drugs. And the stores that were raided by police located on East Hastings Street, West Broadway and Granville Street, all owned by Dana Larson. And Dana Larson is joining us now. He is also the founder of the Medicinal Mushroom Dispensary. Dana, thank you so much for taking some time. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I know you're currently at a protest in case people are wondering what the noise is. So that's why it's kind of noisy where you are. So again, appreciate you doing this. What is the state of the stores that you own at this point? Well, just one thing. I'm not actually the owner. I'm the director of the nonprofit society that runs and operates. Okay. But uh, we reopened our main location on Hastings Street and we're getting restocked as best we can. We'd hope to reopen on on Broadway and 8480 Granville, but we're still getting our stock together and labeling and weighing things up and everything. But uh, we're definitely going to be reopening everywhere and getting back in business and fully operational as soon as we can. And can you walk us through again or remind us what happened on Wednesday? Well, the police came to our to our three locations and also our cannabis dispensary as well. Uh, and they kicked all our staff out. They locked everything down and they seized all of our uh, money, all of our mushrooms, all of our LSD, our DMT, and all of our coca leaf and coca leaf tea as well was taken. And uh, I know you were posting about this, uh, about uh, conversations that you were having with police and the fact that you were arrested d- during the raid. Uh, wh- what were the reasons or what the, the search warrants that were executed? What was the reason given to you? 
Uh, yeah, the search warrant just said that we were accused of uh, selling uh, illegal substances. Uh, and so and they held me for seven hours. I was detained, handcuffed, taken away. But I was released with no charges on no conditions. Uh, and so we just reopen again as soon as we can. How long have you been operating or have, have these uh, businesses been operating? Uh, our, the first one on, on Hastings has been open uh, for three years. We've got a business license, as we do at the other location on Broadway, and they renew our business license every year. Uh, we comply with all the rules as best we can. Uh, we do have a hearing coming up on December 6th at City Hall about our business license on Broadway, and it'll be a chance for city councillors to decide whether to let us keep our license, whether to take it away, to offer conditions. And I'd hope that the police would sort of let the politicians make their decisions first. You know, it's quite possible they'll decide to let us keep our license, like they were licensing cannabis dispensaries for years before legalization happened. So, you know, the city has a choice here, and I, I, I wish the politicians would get a chance to make their decision before the cops come in and start uh, being very heavy-handed. Well, you kind of answered this. I was curious because I, I remember covering those stories and uh, watching as uh, cannabis dispensaries were getting ticketed or getting raided, uh, even though they did ha- have business licenses. It was that kind of strange area uh, before uh, legalization. So is that what we're dealing with here when you're talking about uh, mushrooms and the, the products that you're selling at these stores? In the courts, we've had many decisions of supporting uh, certain people's rights to access medicinal mushrooms, just like we were having with medicinal cannabis in the early days. We're seeing a proliferation of dispensaries, not only ours, there's easily another dozen or so operating in the city. As far as I know, we're the only one that's had a police raid like this. Uh, but this is a movement that's coming. I think it's going to follow probably a quite a similar path to cannabis. It'll happen faster, I think, because we've already been through it once with cannabis, so we kind of know how the story is going to end this time. It's going the same way. You know, Vancouver City Hall can fight and spend a lot of money in court, or they can pass some reasonable bylaws and try to gain their control over what's happening with these places and uh, put some rules in. So we'll see what they decide. Uh, what do people uh, buy? And I know this sounds like a very naive question, but I, I'm curious, for, with the products that are sold at the, the mushroom dispensary, uh, is it medicinal or what are people buying the product for? You know, there's definitely a lot of medicinal users. Some of our most popular products are like microdose capsules that don't have any kind of psychedelic effect, but are very good for therapy, PTSD, trauma, uh, those kind of things, where you're taking like a tenth of a gram, a a microdose level. Uh, But people also, you know, some of them just want to have a pleasant evening or go camping or do something else. And recreation can be good therapy. Everybody who buys any kind of product like that from us has to show us ID, confirm they're over 19, We make them sign a form and check a bunch of boxes that they're going to be responsible. They're going to not be driving, swimming, doing anything risky. They're not going to let minors or pets access it. You know, responsible kind of common sense guidelines. Right. Okay. And you mentioned that the one store is back up and running. And once you can get product, the other two will reopen again. Are you concerned that police will be back and could raid the stores again? Well, I mean, I didn't think they were going to come at all because I thought we would go through the political process. So maybe my judgment's off now, but no, I don't expect them to come back. This would have been uh, probably $150,000 from the police budget spent on this. I I meant, you know, probably 2,000 hours of police work. I based that on when, in 2015, when the police were saying why they weren't raiding cannabis dispensaries, they said, look, it costs us a ton of money. It's 500 hours of police work every time we do a raid, and they raided four of us. So it's probably like, you know, 2,000 hours. So will they come back? I mean, we're going to be more prepared. 
I'm not going to keep so much product on the sites anymore, and we're going to, you know, to batten the hat down the hatches. But uh, if they decide to come back, that's up to them. But we're going to keep operating. This is an important mission. I think we're doing very important work, and uh, we're not going to be closing down. Do you know the cost or the, the dollar amount of the product that was seized? I mean, it's easily over $50,000 that was taken in cash and product, uh, you know, somewhere around there. It kind of depends how you count it, but the wholesale value uh, and all the money that was taken is easily over fifty grand. And, uh, and you know, one of the big things we do is we fund and operate the Get Your Drugs Tested program just down the street from our place on Hastings. We're the world's busiest free street drug analysis center. Uh, we, we've done, like, over 60,000 samples tested, and that's all funded from our cannabis and mushroom sales. And so these, this loss of revenue and these challenges, ultimately, they threaten our ability to continue offering what I think is a pretty important service. Uh, this raid and your arrest came not too, too long after the Vancouver police raided uh, the Drug User Liberation Front, or DOLF, as, as people will know that group. Uh, do you think there's a connection between the two? Oh, absolutely. And I'm right now I'm down at Maiden Hastings. And as you said, there's a protest for DOLF happening here, and I'm here to show my solidarity. And, you know, I believe that we're both trying to approach this issue in the same way, offering a safe supply of these various banned substances. Dolph have been open for over two years, as far as I know. I've been operating for three years, and we both get raided kind of out of the blue, like a week apart from each other. No, this is not a coincidence. And I believe this is about the provincial government. The BC United have been hammering the NDP about safe supply, and I think saying a lot of uh, wrong and and, and, and harmful things, but certainly, you know, I've been very vocal. I'm the most vocal, public, politically active of all the mushroom dispensaries out there. So I think the order has come down and the BPD are responding uh, because they, people, you know, they're, they're feeling embarrassed, you know, that that self has been doing their work, that I'm out here flagrantly disobeying the law and that. I, I think they're trying to they're doing something. But, you know, the reality is this raid is not going to stop us in any way. I have not been charged with anything, which shows that they don't really want to go to court because we might even win a constitutional challenge in court and overturn the laws. And so, you know, ultimately for us, it's been a very expensive advertising boost. I've been getting a lot of media and publicity out of this for our locations and for our cause. Uh, but, you know, it's not the way I want to buy things for Right. Okay. Well, Dana, again, I know you're uh, at that uh, rally right now, so I do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. Take care. Well, this is a story that's getting a lot of attention. And if you think about, uh, well, maybe not tipping if you get DoorDash delivering food for you, apparently you are now going to be doing so at your own risk. And this is because DoorDash has decided that they are going to let people know that orders with no tip might take longer to get delivered. And then there'll be a warning saying, are you sure you want to continue with your order? And then the note goes on for people that place orders saying, Dashers can pick and choose which orders they want to do. Orders that take longer to be accepted by dashers tend to result in a slower delivery. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Corey Mintz, the author of The Next Supper, (coughs) The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them. Corey, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Jill. And I know you've done uh, some work when you, you've talked about tipping and whether or not tipping even should be a practice that is so widely uh, accepted and, and expected in many cases. But what are your thoughts on DoorDash going this route? 
it's a, it's a little bit of a case of them saying the quiet part out loud because I don't see much ambiguity in their language. In my interpretation, it seems a pretty clear threat that unless you pre-tip and tip well because you're competing with other customers, you can expect worse service. Do you, do you read this any other way? Uh, no, and I was curious about that too. Is it, yeah, do we, do we say, well, bravo for being honest about this? Or well, how dare you tell people that they have to tip just to get their order delivered? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is something that I think people have already understood was going on with these platforms and has also led to tip baiting in which some customers will post uh, an enticing tip to to get people to make their deli- to prioritize their delivery and then cut the tip or eliminate the tip, which is obviously awful. But the phrasing of this, the explicit nature of saying you got to tip beforehand in order to compete with other people is, I think, a, a challenge to our interpretation of what a tip is, because this sounds a lot more like a service charge. I mean, certainly according to my understanding of the IRS language between uh, of what a tip versus a service charge is, but aside from the legal ramifications, culturally, this sounds a lot more like the blind bidding process that we engage in our real estate market, which I don't know about you, but I don't like. I, I, I feel like it's safe in the generalization that most people don't like the idea that they decide to want a product or service, then offer what they feel they should pay for it, but know that other people are offering something too, and you know they're they're compelled by a mixture of how badly they want the thing, what they think other people will willing to pay it and their desire, you know, to acquire it or what they could afford. I think that's crazy to, to insert into the experience of ordering, you know, a bowl of ramen or a burger to your door. Well, and it, it made me think about it too, in that with the, with the note that it says it orders with no tip might take longer uh, to get delivered. Are you sure you want to go on and, uh, and continue with this? And that uh, that the longer it takes a DoorDasher to accept it, slower delivery. I, I, I made me think too that it's not only if you're tipping on the order; it's how much you're tipping. And and like you're saying mm-hmm. with the blind bidding, and there are others out there that are going to be paying more or tipping more. Maybe it maybe money is less of an issue to them. That it's not even a question of tipping or not; it's how much. That's right. I mean, if it's seven o'clock on a Friday, you want that burger, Jill, how bad do you really want this burger? Do you want to maybe kick an extra couple dollars in there that that might assert, make certain you get the burger on time? But maybe it's not. Maybe you got to throw in 10, 20. Who knows with inflation? So the the it, it seems like this though isn't getting a, a, a lot of acceptance, or it's it's not something that's just happened and people are thinking, okay, whatever. It seems like people are pushing back against this. Well, you, can, you know, this the CNN story, and I'm writing a follow-up for them, uh, had a quote from a spokesperson saying, as usual, hey, we test things out, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then testing things out is testing out um, whether something is profitable, whether something's efficient, but also what the market will bear in terms of, will this engender public outrage? And if it does, they won't do it. The concern I always have with new technology is, um, you know, all these companies, Uber, Airbnb, et cetera, they all operate by this playbook that let's just do what we got to do to gain market share, to gain customers. We'll leg- worry about the legalities uh, later uh, and get embroiled with legal uh, disputes with cities. Uh, and they all have sort of pursued this strategy of 
let's just get enmeshed in the local economy until the point where when you want to make rules or change things, it's too late. So now is the time to have the conversation with them to say, I don't think this is cool. This is a gross way to try to gamify the experience of ordering food. Well, and could it not also backfire in that getting that message makes you not maybe not tip less because it's not the delivery person's fault or it's not the delivery person who's putting that message out there. But does it make you want to go with a different service, not give them your business? I don't think so, because all the services are bumping up against each other, competing with each other. You know, the, the analysts seem to agree that there's not really a lot of brand loyalty amongst third-party delivery apps from customers' point of view. They all offer incentives and deals and discounts, and people tend to hop back and forth week to week depending on where the deals are. If this works, all the companies will do it. If it doesn't, they'll drop it. And does it kind of point back to the issue that tipping no longer is about good service or about because somebody went a little more above and beyond or did something extra? It is just accepted or it's just expected. Well, I mean, there's where there's, you know, disagreement. I I don't believe that tipping ever was an assessment or a reflection or a thank you or reward or a demonstration of generosity, which I understand a lot of people want to see it as. Um, It it was always in place of of a living wage. It was always a way to say we can pay our employees less if we go by this cultural expectation that the consumer, the diner in this place, uh, will subsidize my employee's wage in in the form of a tip. I I believe that's what it's been for the last hundred years. And it's pretty much a cultural expectation that when you show up, if you can afford the price of a meal, you can afford the tip, you're going to tip. Most of us don't change that much what what our tip percentage is, as much as there's a small handful of consumers who definitely love to lower that sense of power over Mm -hmm. servers and actually withhold a tip. But I think that's rare. But do you think it's a different mindset when you're in a restaurant and going for a, a full sit-down meal where it's going to take an hour or two uh, compared to somebody who's showing up at your door and handing off a burger? It's completely different, but it's part of the whole tip creep that we're experiencing all over where we're seeing the percentage of the tip, you know, the tip prompt jump from, you know, the uh, 15, 20, 25 or 18 to whatever the range is to 20, 25, 30 to the variety of places where we're being encouraged or prompted to tip, extending into bakeries, cafes, fast food, drive-throughs, all kinds of retail experiences where that expectation you describe, hey, we had a lovely evening, you were so fantastic, we're gonna leave something extra at the end, that's completely flipped on its head. When you go and buy a loaf of bread, I don't think that's what you're saying when you leave a tip. It's simply that like technology has figured out a way to immediately grab you by the wallet each time you make an exchange and say, how much do you want to tip? That, that is what we're dealing with. And so with going back to, to DoorDash saying, oh, it's, it's okay, this is just a test. We wanted to put this out there and, and see uh, what uh, people, how people responded to this. Do you think, though, it is really a test or do they want that message out there? Like you said, that message was kind of already happening, even if it wasn't being said out loud. And they, this is their way of putting it out there for people to see. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that they would choose to sort of own this. I think that's always been or that has been on different platforms because they all don't make the same level of transparency with the courier, uh, the dasher, that they call them. In DoorDash's situation, it is. The courier can see 
the amount being offered. So that's always been the, the, the understanding that you're bidding effectively on an order with other couriers. But the idea that they kind of want to own that and say, hey, we're encouraging this, that's what's kind of unusual. And I think, you know, we'll see in the coming weeks how it rolls out. I think it's going to blow back in their face. They're not going to like the public reaction. <laughs> but they, I could be completely wrong, and the public could go, great, another way I can use my phone like a toy and gamify the experience and spend more money to have more exclusivity over other people. Well, it's uh, definitely uh, an interesting strategy uh, either way. Uh, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for talking about this with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.